small little things to be thankful for. For instance, somebody like JB who can play the guitar better than me. <laughs> Thank you for keeping up with that. All right. Um, <laughs> all right. So here's the deal. Uh, we have got all kinds of things that we're doing this morning. Um, if you have a Bible, turn with me to Matthew chapter 2. Uh, normally we have the Bibles out in the seats, but we took the chairs down a couple weeks ago and uh, a couple weeks in a row now. I have failed to actually put the Bibles back out. But if you don't own a Bible of your very own, I know where to find them. Like, I hid them in a special place on a shelf in the back. All right? And so, if you don't have a Bible of your very own, uh, get a hold of me, and I would love to give you one. We believe that God uses His Word for all kinds of important things, but chief among those important things is that He uses His Word to reveal Himself to His people. Uh, we want you to know God. We want everything in and about and around your life uh, to be shaped by, defined by that knowing of Him. And so, if the Scriptures are what He does uses to do that in you, like, just kind of common sense to, to be digging in as much as we can into his word. And so uh, press in uh, as much as you can. If you don't have one, uh, get a hold of me. All right. Um, so we have made a slow walk through the last month of Advent. We did everything in our power to kind of stomp on the brakes, slow us down on purpose, uh, and press into what I would consider the unrivaled story of this season, rather than all of the decorations surrounding the story of this season, the accoutrement meant to adorn the story of this season. Uh, but Christmas is done and gone, right? Like, that's how it works. Like, we're supposed to be over with Christmas now. Like, how many of y'all are planning on, like, putting up your decorations this afternoon? My family. We're putting up our decorations this afternoon. The tree's been fun, but I, I, I want to put the chair back where the chair goes. That kind of deal. All right? Um, so, uh, but, but now that Christmas is done and gone, now that all your hopes and dreams have been fulfilled this weekend, like, how many of you had your hopes and dreams fulfilled this Christmas? How many of you, the food came out exactly when you thought it was supposed to come out? How many of you got that perfect present? They were so thoughtful, and you showed the exact right amount of gratitude. Not too much. You don't want to be all material, right? But you, you were grateful, and you thanked them. You gave them a big hug. How many of you, you set a new standard in your family for how to show sacrificial love to each other? Didn't fight. Not one terse word. <laughs> I mean, that was all of our experience, right? How many of you, now that your Christmas celebration is landed with hallmark perfection, you're just, you're just resting in awesome? The obvious next thing to point to or question is, well, what do we do now, right? Now that Christmas is quote-unquote over, where, where do we go from here? What's the next step? What, what's the next step in, in what's supposedly the, the cosmic story that changes literally everything? Whether you're going to kind of lazily leave the decorations up for the next month and a half or you've got an agenda this afternoon, doesn't matter. What's, what's the next step? Well, Matthew chapter 2. 
I think Matthew chapter 2 is the next step. Matthew's gospel, it takes a, a little bit of a different trajectory, a little bit of a different uh, kind of uh, approach to the birth narrative of Jesus than Luke's gospel does. Uh, he focuses his, his, his attention, I think, in early on, on Joseph's conflict. All right, Joseph's conflict. Uh, largely because I think he's aiming at an audience that would have identified better with Joseph and Joseph's struggles, namely faithful Jewish men. All right, And so Matthew's kind of putting the pieces together for a largely Jewish audience, a male Jewish audience, and so he focuses, lasers his attention, his telling of the birth story on the, the struggles and the wrestling of, of Joseph. And so uh, most of us normally, I think, or at least I do, uh, we, when we think of the Christmas story and we go to read the Christmas story, we normally read it out of Luke's gospel. That's what we did uh, Friday night when we gathered in here for our candlelight service, right? It's, it's what Charlie Brown does. When you want to tell the story of the birth of Jesus, you head to Luke because that's the story you want to tell, right? And we think that Luke Luke got a lot of his details, at least primarily, from Mary herself, because Luke's version of the story is an incredibly Mary-centric version of the story. It's very Mary-focused. But Matthew, Matthew seems to be aiming at the dudes. He seems to be aiming at the men, faithful Jewish men who would have wrestled in the same kind of ways that Joseph wrestled with all the things that he had to wrestle with. And so in chapter 1, Chapter 1, uh, Les read it for us. Uh, we, we get the genealogy and we connect those dots. But, but then Matthew takes the next step in the back half of chapter 1. Les didn't read that piece, but I can summarize it for you. In the back half of chapter 1, Matthew digs into Joseph having to come to terms with learning that his betrothed wife, right, Mary, a lady that he had not known physically yet, she was physically pregnant. It wasn't his kid. What's he going to do about it? Right? And so imagine yourself in this same scenario. Like, how are you playing this out? And we learn in that story, in Matthew's telling of that story, that Joseph is full of class and character. He's an absolutely stand-up guy. It would have been incredibly common, incredibly common, and maybe even expected in their culture for a man to make a giant show out of divorcing a woman who had been unfaithful to him. It would have been the normal fare of the day. You shame those who have done shameful things as the story normally goes. But before Joseph even knows what's going on, before he even gets an answer to his wrestling question, before an angel visits him in a dream, right? If you're familiar with the story. Before all that, we learn that Joseph sought to divorce her quietly. Meaning, he wanted to protect Mary and provide for Mary, even as he knew that the marriage couldn't go forward. That's a tall man right there. It's a tall man. But God gives Joseph the dream. He's ensured that Mary has not been unfaithful. The, the child in her belly and the child in her womb is a, a gift from the Lord, and he can trust in God's plan. And so Joseph goes, okay. He does what's needed, puts on his big boy pants, and he walks in faithfulness. That's Joseph's story. And even though the folks in their small town could probably do the math in their heads, like folks in small towns everywhere could do the math in their heads, Joseph, Matthew tells us, went ahead and finalized the marriage, but knew her not until Jesus was born. And then... Well, then Matthew just kind of skips right past all the really cool birth narrative stuff that we read Friday night. Just blows right past it. Doesn't even mention it. Look at chapter 2. 
He skips ahead in the story. And in chapter 2, verse 1, he says this. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is, the one, or where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. Okay, so there, there's a lot going on in the text that needs to be unpacked. For starters, we see some incredibly familiar stuff that we've we kind of been talking about all month long. Jesus is born in Bethlehem of Judea, and that's kind of a crazy thing to, to think about. Uh, and so, but when is he born? We're told in the days of King Herod. So why is any of that stuff important? Well, because we are about as far removed from the golden age of Israel as you can possibly get. We're, we're not talking about the united king, kingdom of Israel, and we're not even really talking about the, the divided king of Judah. We are talking about Roman-occupied Judea, and there's a difference. Roman-occupied Judea. What was once supposedly a theocratic monarchy in a land flowing with milk and honey is now nothing more than a quiet backwater district in someone else's empire. And because they're nothing more than the far corner of someone else's empire, the rulership of Judea is delegated to a non-Jewish client king named Herod. What's a client king, you ask? Well, in the Roman Empire, they were kind of a middle management type figure that you allowed to act as a king of a region that you didn't care about paying attention to. Here, here, go play king over there so we can focus on what's really important for us. We'll call on you if we need you. That's a client king. Uh, give them some local control. Give them a small army to kind of help them enforce Roman law, or at least the major Roman laws, and that'll keep the peace for a little while. Uh, Rome gets all the resources. They get all the fighting men, and Pax Romana has been achieved. That's the game. Get you a guy like Herod, put him on a, a fake throne, and say, hey, if you do something out of bounds, we'll remove you from that throne, but until then, just have your little palace and enjoy it. That's what a client king did. And in the case of the Roman province of Judea, that client king is Herod. Herod the Great, to be more precise. We know that Herod was incredibly rich. We know that he liked to build stuff. Uh, there are, uh, he built ma a massive winter palace in Jericho to go along with his summer home in Jerusalem. Uh, we, we know from historical records that he's got his name attached to like pagan temples all over the, the Roman Empire uh, that he helped to finance just because he was super passionate about architecture and building fancy things. Uh, we also know uh, he dies not long after this story, but we, knows that we know that before he died, he financed and got the project the, bolt, the, the ball rolling, the project started on the remodeling of the temple that we see playing out later in Jesus' life. He started it, his son finished it about 40-ish, 50-ish years later. So it was a massive, massive project. But Herod wasn't merely passionate about architecture. He was also, also, get this, wildly paranoid. He was scared that somebody was always about to steal his make-believe throne from him. Um, so we know that he murdered both his wife and one of his sons because they got cross-eyed with him. He thought that maybe they were going to try to usurp him and take his power, and so he murdered family members to prevent that. Fun guy. 
Everybody in the palace tread carefully so as to not be seen as a threat to Herod. And then one day, <laughs> some magicians from the east come traipsing in, asking where the newborn king is. Hmm. Anybody think that stirred some things in old Herod? <laughs> Brought up some emotional baggage in Mr. the Great? Probably so. We, we, we going with yes on that one? We're told that wise men from the east come to Jerusalem. The ESV uh, keeps the similar wording from the King James, the, the wise men. But the Greek there is literally the word magi. All right? uh, the word is used in a few different ways in the Bible, especially in the Old Testament. But most of them have to do with magician, kind of diviner type figures uh, from pagan peoples. Uh, calling them wise men that works, it's not like it's out of bounds or wrong. Because they were a learned class of men who often served as like advisors in pagan uh, kingdoms. All right? It was their job. Job, their duty to be the wise person in the room advising the king, right? And so, uh, and, and that's exactly what we see play out in the Old Testament version of the Magi whenever they, they pop up. Uh, we see Magi uh, in the story of Joseph in Egypt in Genesis, right? Uh, uh, the Pharaoh's Magi couldn't figure out the dream, and so they called in Joseph to interpret the dream for him. And so the Magi's job was to be the, the one who learned the dark arts and understood the, 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 the other cultures and understood all of these things so that they could advise the king. And when they couldn't get the job done, Joseph is called in to interpret the dream for them. All right? Um, same is true of Daniel when he's in Babylon, if you remember that story. We also see Moses pit against the Egyptian Magi when he's doing the plagues. It was the Magi's job to try to copy the plagues that were happening to say, oh, Moses isn't that great. We can do it too. That was the purpose. And so magi from the east, they would have been a priestly, scholarly, magician-type figure who probably lived in Persia, right? Or Babylon. This, by the way, means that the song We Three Kings, absolute nonsense. <laughs> they weren't kings. They, they represented, maybe, faraway kings, but they never would have been kings themselves. Their job was to study other cultures, including Jewish culture. And if these guys were from Persia, were from Babylon, then, then Daniel serving in the king's court during the Babylonian exile would have had a big old impact on them. They would have hung out together. Now, obviously not these literal men, but the ones they come from, the ones that they've had their learning and knowledge passed down generation after generation after generation. Yeah, they probably know who Daniel is. They likely practice some form of astrology slash Zoroastrianism. And, and so it's their job to watch the sky. And they watch it closely. They would likely have tracked and kind of recorded movements for hundreds of generations, maybe thousands of years. And so when a new star shows up, they know what they're looking at. They know exactly what they're looking at, and they assume that there's some significance to it. And so they dig into the prophecies that they know of. And, and, and like Bob walked us through last week, there's a lot to point to in the, in the Jewish scriptures in the Old Testament, right? There's a lot of prophecy to point to about the coming of a Messiah. But one of the ones that Bob didn't mention last week, didn't cover last week, was Balaam's prophecy in Numbers 24. You remember the story of Balaam and his talking donkey? That one ever come up for you in Sunday school? Balaam was a pagan prophet 
He wasn't a Jew. He was hired by the king of Moab to prophesy curses against the nation of Israel, against God's people. And guess what? God wouldn't let him do it. Crazy story. Uh, he ends up prophesying blessing for Israel and curses against Moab. So they flip the script on him. And in Numbers 24, 17, as Balaam is pronouncing blessing for a third time now. He's tried three times, failed three times. So, so blessing is coming out of his mouth instead of curses. In Numbers 24, 17, he says, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. It shall crush the forehead of Moab and break down all the sons of Sheth. Okay, what does that mean? Well, we know from writings existing at the time, late 1st century B.C., we have writings that point to that verse in Balaam's prophecy, and faithful Jews were going, yep, that's totally about the Messiah. The Messiah kingly figure is going to rise. He's going to have a star. Scholars of Israel's own scriptures pointed to that verse and said, that one's definitely about the coming Messiah one day. It's not far-fetched to think that scholars from another culture who had those scriptures came to the same conclusion. And so when they see a new star in the sky, whatever that star actually is, and some want to argue it's a star, some want to argue it's a, a convergence or a comet or some special thing that God just kind of put there. Whatever that star is, when they saw the star, they connect the dots and they go looking for the king it was supposed to be pointing to. In their minds, worship and honor was owed in that moment. And so they did something with it. They travel hundreds of miles. And they head to what for them would have been the most natural place to go looking for a Jewish messianic king. Where would you go? Go to the Jewish palace in Jerusalem. They pop their heads in. Hey, we saw the star. Isn't it exciting? I, I mean, we're excited. I bet you're really excited. So where is this kid? Let's see him. But instead of being excited about the news, what response do we see? Verse 3. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. Hey, anybody want to guess why Herod's not excited? Hello? You might want to guess why everybody who knows him is getting kind of nervous right now. Like, like everybody who's watching this play out is probably going, oh no, Herod's about to go off, right? This is the guy who murders wives and sons. What's he about to do to these guys? We'll look at verse 4. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he, Herod, inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. All right, so Herod gathers his kind of band of eggheads, all the religious religious leaders and experts in the law, and he has them tell him where the Messiah, King, is supposed to be born. Uh, which is funny, because like, that's 
kind of exactly the type of information that in other generations, the king of God's people probably ought to be able to figure out for himself. And uh, at one point in Israel's history, Deuteronomy 17, we're told that the king was required to have his own personal copy of the law that he copied by his own hand. And they were to, quote, read from it day and night so that they may learn to fear the Lord. We are a long long way from the golden age of Israel. You've got to bring people in to, and ask, All right, what, what does this say? I don't know what it says. Tell me what it says. Herod calls in the religious authorities. Hey, where's this Messiah king supposed to be born? And, and they tell him. They just rattle it off. The way Matthew records it here, it doesn't even look like they had to like go off and study and debate it amongst themselves. They just rattled off an answer. Oh, oh, uh, he's supposed to be born in, in Bethlehem. That, that's, uh, and then they kind of quote Micah 5.2. Now say kind of, because uh, if you go and look at Micah 5.2, there's actually some major differences there. Um, in, Matthew, uh, in Matthew 2, uh, they say, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. But in Micah, in Micah it says, But you, O Bethlehem, Ephratah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah. So is Bethlehem a big deal ruler? Or, is, or are they a tiny clan? Which is it? Did Matthew mix up the quote? And that difference, maybe you're new to the church thing, maybe you're new to the Bible, that difference has actually caused some to accuse Matthew's gospel of not being a faithful account of things. That one quote. So, what's going on? Well, this is another one of a long list of instances that, that I think that simply slowing down and looking for a reasonable answer actually leads us to trust the Bible more, not reject it. If we slow down and press in, we might actually find something valuable. First of all, Micah 5.2 isn't quoted here. It's not misquoted. It's summarized. And there's a difference between those two things. And secondly, Matthew's not quoting Micah. He's quoting what the scribes summarized about Micah. Those are wildly different things. He quotes the scribes because, and this is crazy, but Matthew wants to give an accurate account of what was actually said that night and not fix it for him. He, he presses in and says what they said. But, but even if we ignore all those other things, like the scribes are way more innocent in this than we probably are giving them credit for because their summary is still consistent with what Micah is actually saying. Um, Micah's point is to show that the Messiah will come from Bethlehem, a tiny place that's often overlooked. And the scribe's summary of Micah, they're saying that because the Messiah comes from Bethlehem, we probably shouldn't overlook that place. They're saying pretty much the same thing. And so, no, Micah is not uh, quoted word for word here, but it's also intellectually dishonest to try to argue that it's some kind of contradiction. It's not even close to a contradiction. They're saying basically the exact same thing. Oh, but in Micah, it adds the, the name Ephratah. And so I don't, I don't know what that means, but it sounds different than Judah. Well, Ephratah is a little smaller division, a region, kind of like what we would call a county in our own day. Most people don't pay attention to county lines. Didn't then either. 
But Ephratah was likely a small district that Bethlehem of Judah was in. And so Bethlehem hadn't moved. It's the same Bethlehem. Oh, okay, okay, okay. I got one more for you. Uh, in, in Matthew, it says that the king will be a shepherd, but in Micah, it says that the king will be a leader. Those are different things. Kind of. And then two verses later in Micah 5, 4, something the scribes would have also known, we're told that that ruler will shepherd God's people. So they summarize it. It's also something, a shepherd is something, by the way, that said of pretty much every king of Israel since the OG shepherd, King David. They're always shepherding Israel. So the moral of the story is that if you want to find ways to automatically kind of dismiss the Bible, you're, you're going to find something that you can cling to. You're just going to. There's, there's all kinds of stuff that you can say, oh, I knew it. I knew it. Or, or we could just you know, like calm down and take a breath and trust that God provides simple answers. That's also a pretty good option. Pretty good option. People with an agenda often want to twist the screws on these kinds of things, but there's just not much here to twist. So you don't have to burn the house down on this. If you find yourself kind of wrestling with a text, whether it's this one or another one, you don't have to hit the panic button. You can take a breath and look at what the Bible actually says. You can ask good questions and, and lean on good resources. You'll be okay. There's an answer somewhere in there. Herod is not okay, though. Herod's got a problem. Um, he's not having a crisis of faith moment. He's having an, uh-oh, the rightful king is finally here moment. All right? And so the scribes have an immediate answer for him. And they, they tell him that the Messiah king is to be born in Bethlehem. This is what the prophet said, Herod. And then what happens? We want to form a little pool and take some guesses? Who wants to guess how the paranoid client king who acts in brutality is going to handle this news? Well, verse 7. Then, then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. So was that what you expected? You smell a trap? We all on the same page and smell a trap here? Herod calls in the Magi. And I love that Matthew says he ascertained when the star had appeared, showing that Herod is deliberately trying to be sneaky. Herod gets the information that he wants. We learn later on in verse 16 that it's as much as two years have passed by this point. This is, this is why we harp every year on the idea of the wise men being present in the Christmas narrative. It's because they weren't present in the Christmas narrative. Like if you want your cute little nativity scene at home to be historically accurate, take your wise men and put them on the other side of the room. <laughs> or if you want it to be like true to scale, like mail them to Connecticut. <laughs> No, Herod figures out how long the star has been around. And, and what, is, what does he say, he say next? He says, go and find him and let me know where he is because I want to worship him too. Herod's a snake. An absolute snake. If you're new to the Bible and don't know the story, Herod eventually has every male child in the area of Bethlehem under the age of two murdered. Got to put a stop to it. 
And the more time you spend thinking on that and chewing on that reality, the more heinous it becomes, the more heinous and outrageous as it sounds. And so we're going to spend a moment thinking about it. Like if, if mass infanticide isn't enough to gut you, and let me go ahead and say something out loud that probably shouldn't need to be said out loud, mass infanticide needs to gut you. If that somehow is not enough for you, we can add a couple more layers. In this case, in this case, we've got mass infanticide for the express purpose of protecting one man's political career. It's a terrible thing. We can add more layers still. Not only is Herod his position threatened, and so he has a bunch of baby slaughter, and it's no big deal, but we can, we can add a, another layer. Herod has had respected religious scholars show up on his doorstep pointing to a new star in the sky. And then he has his own religious leaders of Israel, his personal advisors about religious matters go, yep, yep, that's exactly what that means. And his thought is not God has provided the, through miraculous circumstances everything he has always promised to provide. No, no, his thought is, you know what? I need to murder some kids to stop this. That's his thought. Here it is, working and manipulating not just political realities here, but he intends to commit mass murder in order to stop God from doing what God intends to do. Anybody think he's going to be successful? He's both a monster and an idiot. Here it's clueless. He will cause terrible evil, terrible evil, and destruction, and he will also utterly fail to accomplish anything he plans to accomplish. He will not be successful in his purposes, but right now he's still spinning his web. He's working his tail off to try to Undo God's plan. Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may worship him. Look at verse 9. After listening to the king, they, the wise men, went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. Verse 10, when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. So the Magi leave Herod's palace, then upon leaving, they, they see the star again, and this time it's leading them to Jesus. It's not just getting them to Jerusalem, not just getting them to the palace. No, it's actually leading them uh, to Jesus. Bethlehem is only about six-ish miles down a mountain from the city of Jerusalem. And so whatever exactly the star actually is, we know that something special is going on here. Because we're not talking about a faraway burning mass in the sky anymore. We're, we're, this is something significantly more localized right now. And so we're told that it came to rest over where the child was. Oh, but come on, Stephen. Stars don't act like that. That's not what stars do. I, I learned about stars. I, yeah, I know. <laughs> yeah, correct. Stars do not act like that. We're all on the same page. But also God gets to do whatever he wants. Both of those sentences are 100% true and they are not in conflict with each other. Yes, stars do not work that way. And God can make a star work that way if he so chooses. 
Both are on board. It's God's star. He can use it however he wants to. In fact, I'll make you a deal. If you can figure out how to make and control a star, I'll help petition God for you to be able to use it however you want to. Have fun. Let me know when you're finished. God uses his special star, and whatever that star actually is, he uses it to lead the Magi directly to Jesus. It somehow rests over the house. And so the Magi are amazed by the star, and they rejoice with exceedingly great joy over the star. But they are not confused by the star. They follow the star. They know exactly how they should respond. They follow it. And so in verse 11, we see this. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. So Mary and Joseph aren't in uh, with the animals in the morning. They're now in the house. Uh, they're, they're not with the animals anymore. I didn't say that very clearly the first time. They are not with the animals anymore. They are now in the house. Hey, I can speak. I do this for a living. All right, so this is, this is a part of the story that I think probably most people have never actually bothered or, or stopped long enough uh, to, to actually give a lot of pretty, kind of deep thought to. Uh, in Luke's account, when it says that, that Jesus was laid in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn, a lot of people just kind of take that to all kinds of, of places. Uh, but that word inn, it, it's more literally translated as a guest room. All right, and so that's all, that's all it is. There's no Motel 6 in the ancient Near East. Nobody's leaving the light on for you. All right, so Joseph traveled to his ancestral home because of the census. So newsflash, like he's got family there. That's why he's there. He's got family in the area. And so, uh, and so why wouldn't there be any room for him though? Well, because everybody else was traveling to their ancestral home too. There's a lot of people moving around. And, and so there might have been more honorable family already taking up the space. Or some, a lot of people speculate that, that it might be because of the spiritual uncleanness of the situation. Whatever the case, we're told that night, that silent night in Bethlehem, we're told that they end up where the animals sleep. He was laden in manger because there wasn't in, they didn't have the guest room. Which is another thing that most people have never thought carefully about. There's, there's also a pretty good chance that this is nothing more than the downstairs portion of the house. Um, many homes in that part of the world would have had the living quarters kind of upstairs, and the downstairs portion would have been more like work area. It would have been a dirt floor workspace with really thin walls. And so, um, and so bringing the animals in at night into that bottom level that was already pretty dirty and you know, used for normal things, that kind of makes a lot of sense. Not everybody had an extra stable on the side in that part of the world. Not everybody had that kind of cash flow. But again, regardless of what ever happened that silent night, time has now passed, and so the newborn and his family have moved into the house proper. The Magi follow the star, and they head in with their gifts, which is funny to me, because I was taught growing up that you weren't supposed to go to people's house uninvited. Don't invite yourself over to people's houses, Stephen. That's not, that's not polite. But they brought presents, so I guess it's cool. And what were the presents? Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And two of those three things, if I were to set them on the platform and like have you look at them, you wouldn't know what they were, <laughs> right? It's the gold, obviously the gold. All right. 
Frankincense and myrrh were both tree resins that, that were used to make other important things like incense and anointing oil. They smelled nice, and so you mixed them with other really nice smelling things and used them in ceremonial ways. Um, in Exodus 30, uh, if you're familiar with that story, is they're kind of walking through what the tabernacle would be and what the sacrificial system would look like. In Exodus 30, God gives instructions for how to make the incense, the only kind of incense that was burned on the altar of incense. And the recipe for that incense includes frankincense. You're welcome. Uh, in the same chapter, earlier in the chapter, God also tells them how to make the type of oil that would be used for anointing the high priest. And the main ingredient in the high priest's anointing oil was, quote, 500 shekels worth of the finest liquid myrrh. I don't know what that looks like, but it sounds cool. And people often want to try to make a really big deal out of the symbolism attached to the gifts. And some you know, try to postulate that you know, they were supposed to represent Jesus' three offices, prophet, priest, and king. And, and I mean, there's a pretty solid argument to that kind of stuff. And those aren't, arguments aren't necessarily out of bounds. It's possible that that's, that's what's going on. But the Bible never actually says what they're for. And so anytime you try to assign symbolism to the things that the Bible doesn't say, hey, this is, means this and this represents this, you're in a dangerous place. You're playing a game that's likely going to end up being wrong as often as you are right or maybe more often wrong than you are right. And so I think probably the simplest explanation of things is that they were really just costly items that were appropriate to give whenever you were trying to honor and celebrate a king. Valuable things, sweet-smelling things. The wise men recognized Jesus as a king. They traveled hundreds of miles, literally hundreds of miles, to celebrate and show him honor. And so they gave him king-sized gifts. And what did they do with those gifts? Again, we don't know. They are never mentioned again in the Bible. But there are a lot of people who speculate that it might have been used to fund what happens next. Look at verse 12. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And his mother, um, excuse me, 14, and he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. So the Magi are warned in a dream not to, uh, about, they're warned about what Herod was up to. And, and so they just, they just decide right then and there that they're going to skip the return visit. We're going to go back by another route. And then after that, Joseph is given his own dream and warned what Herod is up to. And so they flee town. He, he, they, they head down to Egypt. So Joseph packs up his family in the, in the middle of a different road trip, no less. They're already far from home. But Joseph packs up his family in the middle of the night, under the cover of night, and they slip out of town to avoid Herod's murderous plan, right? If nothing else, man, Joseph has learned that when God speaks, his job is to listen. So he acts accordingly. He's given a warning, and obediently they get out of Dodge. And in that obedience, he not only protects the infant Jesus 
but also manages to fulfill some other prophecy about the coming Messiah. Matthew just kind of drops it in there as if it was nothing. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. This, this was to, uh, to fulfill what Hosea said out of Egypt. I, I called my son. Okay. Joseph didn't know that. He was just walking in obedience to what God put in front of him. Herod's evil is evil. There's no doubt about it. But Herod's evil is also, at the same time, powerless to stop God's plan to save a people for himself. Can't even slow it down. God is going to use even Herod's murderous rage to accomplish his purposes. But as weird as it sounds, I also kind of think that Herod's response was actually necessary or or inevitable is maybe a better way to put that. Why? Well, because when the news of the rightful king showing up hits you, it will always, and I mean always, incite some type of response from you. When the news of the rightful king stepping onto the scene emerges, it will always elicit some type of response from you. And I think that that response will always, and I mean always, be directly dependent upon whether or not you recognize him as the rightful king. Whether you've noticed it yet or not, there are three groups of people in the story, and they all get the same news. Do you see them? Jesus' family, the Magi, and then Herod and his advisors. We, we see all three respond to that news. And so with, with the Magi and with, with Mary and Joseph, we, we see a humbling, right? That, that's what they do. They, they posture themselves as servants before the Lord. We see obedience and we see a desire to celebrate and to, to show honor, which is the exact opposite of what Herod does, right? Like literally the exact opposite. He feigns honor but goes the other route. But not just Herod. Not just Herod. His advisors too. The religious authorities of Israel were told chief priests and scribes when he called them in. The big guns. They're immediate with their answer to him. Yeah, 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 yeah. The Messiah King is supposed to be born in, that, in Bethlehem. Oh, the, there's some wise men here, some magi here pointing to a star. Okay, yeah, the star is supposed to represent the Messiah King being born in Bethlehem. That's where you'll find him. And then what happens? Nothing. They are quick with their answer, but we do, they are not quick, or we don't have any recorded desire from them to go see the Messiah King for themselves. The way that Matthew tells the story, we're just kind of left to assume that they were completely unmoved by this news. Go back home and go to bed. I got work in the morning. The response seems to be apathy. So the painfully obvious question that we are responsible for asking ourselves this morning is really simple. When, when we hear the news of the arrival of the rightful king, do we recognize him as such? Because listen, that knee-jerk response is going to come out whether you try to hide it or not. Do we recognize him as the rightful king? When that news hits us, what is the response? Listen, maybe you're here today and you've always been around religious things, always been around church stuff like Christmas celebrations and and whatnot. You've always been around, but you've never actually taken the very next step to recognize Jesus as the, not a, the rightful king. 
you don't have to leave here this morning having never taken that step. The Bible teaches that because of our sin, that all people are separated relationally from God, that, that we rebel against him, we, we claim his rule and his glory for ourselves. And so the truth is that we are all owed the righteous and just punishment for that sin. The Bible calls it death. But the Bible also teaches that God is rich in mercy and that he loves us with a great love, that even when we are dead in our trespasses and sins, it, he makes us alive by his grace through Christ. So the, the eternal son of God, Jesus, he put on flesh and he dwelt among us. He lived a sinless life that neither you nor I are capable of living. He died on the cross as a sacrificial substitute, a, a payment in my place to make payment for my sin. And he was raised again from the dead as a vindication of his perfect and sufficient righteousness. Now as the king who conquered sin and death, he calls on you to respond to him in repentance and in faith this morning, to turn away from your sin and to turn to him as Savior and Lord. And listen, you can do that today. You can put your faith, your trust in King Jesus. I'd love to be helpful to you. Normally I'm down front, but I got to play another song or try to play another song today. All right, but we can talk after class, man. I'd love to be helpful to you as you Respond to Jesus. But what about all those of us in here who are already followers of Jesus this morning? How, how do we respond? The same way we do every single week. We repent of sin and we lean into what God is revealing about himself in the text. And, and so in one sense, our, our responsibility or, or our response to you know, rightfully seeing Jesus as king it just kind of naturally flows out of us. It, it's something that happens out of hearts that have been changed by him. But in another sense, it's also something that we've got to discipline in ourselves. When the Magi saw the star, they didn't just admire it from afar. They assembled their traveling party, they wrapped their gifts, and they set out for an incredibly long journey. It was costly to them. And it was simultaneously the right and appropriate thing to do. What action is God calling you to in this next season? Because of who he is, because of what he has done, because he is king of kings and lord of lords come in the flesh. What action is he calling you to? And yeah, maybe it's costly to you. Incredibly costly, but maybe it's also simultaneously the right and appropriate thing to do. Not because he's promised you some reward for faithfulness, though I think he does seem to do that sometimes. Now, what if it's right and appropriate simply because the king is infinitely worthy of sacrificial praise? What if that's true? We saw a month ago that a correct understanding and celebration of Thanksgiving kind of set the table for us to uh, kind of have a better, more God-focused celebration of Christmas. I, I think I can also make the argument I'm pretty sure I can make the argument that a correct uh, celebration and understanding of Christmas sets the table for us to have a better, more God-focused kind of first step into a new year. I think that's also true. If Jesus is the rightful king and if we recognize him as the rightful king, then everything truly changes. That'll affect how you make some resolutions for next year, won't it? I'm going to pray. We're going to sing. However, God's word is calling you to respond this morning. Let's respond together.
right now. Father, you're good to us. Thank you for the scriptures. Thank you for being the God who saw fit to come near. Father, as we respond to your word, would you convince us that Jesus coming changes everything. That it's not just a story that we can file away now that Christmas is over. But it actually demands a response from us week after week after week, day after day after day. Like the wise men, would we saddle up the camels and get busy going? And unlike Herod and his advisors... <laughs> Protect us from being unmoved by the Christmas story or even working against the Christmas story. And to be clear, nothing we could do would ever stand in the way of what you're doing. But all of Bethlehem would have been better and all of Israel with it if Herod had recognized the rightful king as the rightful king. So Father, if that's us today, whether, whether we know you or we don't know you yet, would you draw us near to yourself? Show off your kingship. For those who don't know you, would you make yourself known, open eyes to see and ears to hear, hearts to know you this morning? I'm convinced that when we see you as you are, it'll, it'll do something in us. And so as we sing, as we celebrate, as we respond, Would you do a mighty work in us and help us respond well? Amen.